We have a special program this week on Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. Thank you for tuning in. As you well know, this is the 20th anniversary of September 11th and the attacks on New York City. Stuart Hoke, who is Carrie's guest today, was there. You'll find out why as you listen to the program, which we will replay for you in its original form. You'll hear some different things in the show. The theme song's different. The co-host is different. But Stuart Hoke, who was there on 9-11 and is now in Little Rock, again as the priest in charge at St. Mark's Episcopal Church in Little Rock, will be spending this weekend in the New York City suburbs, where he'll speak at a memorial service in Greenwich, Connecticut, home to a number of those who died on 9-11, on both Saturday and on Sunday. But this program, originally broadcast years ago on Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy, is now heard on the 20th anniversary of that fateful day in its original form. Welcome to All Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy, production of flagandbanner.com. And now it's time for Carrie McCoy to get all up in your business. My guest today is the Episcopal priest and doctor of theology, Father Stuart Hoke. Dr. Hoke was born in Memphis, but raised across the wide Mississippi River in Blyville, Arkansas. He is a Mustang. <laughs> I bet you hadn't heard that in a while. Having graduated from SMU, Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas, he then went on to receive his Master of Divinity degree from the Episcopal Divinity School in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Father Hoke spent most of his ministry serving congregations in Arkansas and Texas until in 1996 he got the academic bug and completed the Master of Sacred Theology degree at New York's General Theological Seminary. For the next eight years, he would serve as executive assistant to the rector of Trinity Church Wall Street in New York City and missioner to St. Paul's Chapel at Ground Zero. I can't wait to talk to him about that. For the past 30 years, Dr. Hoke has not only been spreading the good news of God's grace, but also that of AA's 12-step recovery program. In his Ministry of Recovery, he has pioneered two nationally recognized courses on the church's role in the treatment of alcoholism and addictive illness. He is renowned for his workings with congregations and dioceses of impaired clergy. Dr. Hoke has now moved back to Arkansas where he's the assistant priest at Trinity Episcopal Cathedral in downtown Little Rock, and he continues his active participation and ministry in the 12-step recovery program. It is a pleasure to welcome to the table Reverend Dr. Stuart Hoke. Hello, Father. Good morning. Good afternoon. <laughs> Good afternoon. Blyville, <laughs> uh, Arkansas, that means either your parents were at the Air Force Base, they were farmers, or they worked at the steel plant. Which one? My father was stationed at the... Army Air Force Base yep. during the Second World War, met my mother, who was the daughter of a, one of the first stores in the city, the Hubbard Furniture Company. Oh, you're so, kidding. So we were... And you were the, rich. We were just absolutely not rich, <laughs> <laughs> but we were comfortable. Yeah, you were the small-town furniture owner in a small Blyville, Arkansas. And you pronounce it correctly, Blyville, Arkansas. I have friends from Blyville. I've been there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Air Force Base, I think, has moved out, though. Air Force Base is gone now. The city's much smaller than it was when mm-hmm. I was growing up. Mm-hmm. But it's got great fertile ground. It's on the Mississippi River. Oh. You know, it's great yeah. farming country. I just heard the other day that Bill Gates was buying up 
uh, some Delta land in Arkansas. Yeah. You knew that? Black dirt. Wonderful place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, after reading about you, it seems like you always kind of knew you wanted to be a priest because you went to college to be a priest. You went to SMU? Went to SMU. I didn't. I knew I wanted to be a clergy person long, long time ago. I didn't tell anybody. That's not the kind of thing you tell your teenage friends, but that was that, that's what I wanted. How'd you know that? Uh, well, my parents were active Episcopalians. We were in church every Sunday. The Episcopal priest in town, even in that little town, was always the educated bon vivant. He knew the... Uh, the what? His, the bon vivant. He yeah, was I see the these Episcopal who, preachers. They're uh, just so educated. What does that mean? He knew his salad fork from his entree fork. <laughs> he ate well. He took me to the opera in Memphis. Uh, just men like that, educated, worldly, who'd been around, uh, gave me a good model. And I said, I, I want to do that. Mm-hmm. So I did. So that's a lot of responsibility for yeah. you guys to follow in his footstep. Went to SMU. My father insisted that I be an engineer. I fixed that by making my first and only D in calculus. So that was the end of my engineering career, and I wanted to study religion and language. And uh, my father thought that was not a good idea whatsoever. So Latin, but, I guess? Uh, Latin and Greek, yeah. Latin and Greek and, and religious studies at SMU, most exciting courses I've ever taken. Uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> um, you After you graduated from college in the most exciting Latin and Greek courses you've ever taken, yeah. um, you decided to go on to get a master's, and you went to Cambridge, Massachusetts. I did. It was the Vietnam War. Uh, I... I had a medical disability because I had tried to go into the service and that was not possible. Went um, went to Cambridge, Massachusetts from Dallas, Texas in the fall of 1968. Wow, right no, in the middle no break, of it. Right in the middle of it. And was in Cambridge for four years doing all the riots in the colleges and the nation. Uh, I was uh, happened to be on the street when tear gas fall on two occasions. Really? So I really learned something about the uh, life of the church in the streets as well as in the church building itself. And it was it was the war, and we were really doing whatever we could to see that the war could stop. So many of our friends had died, and so many more were going to die. So mm. we were very sensitized to that at the time. A great place for a theological education during that period. Did you work while you were there? I did. I worked. I was... Uh, um, a chaplain, student chaplain at the Bunker Hill Community Mental Health Center, which was in Charlestown, Massachusetts. It was an Irish ghetto, it was called at the time. And my job was to go around and meet the community and introduce them to the health center as well as to some dynamics of of spiritual living, spiritual health. And there was a lot of talk about alcoholism at the time because Charlestown was full of it. And Irish. And Irish, exactly, mm-hmm. yeah, ex- exactly. So uh, I listened closely. I'd grown up in alcoholism. Your parents uh, were? Um, it was in my family, it very in your close family. in my mm-hmm. family. I wanted to know as much as I could about it. In fact, I got a job. My first job in Cambridge, Massachusetts, was a student chaplain at the Long Island Center for the Chronically Alcoholic. These were the skid row bums. And my first job there was to be an orderly. I helped clean them up after they got off the street. Were they Vietnam vets, a lot of them? Some of them, yeah. Some Seems of them. like that's a lot of the homeless people or veterans of some sort. 
I think this is probably a great place for us to take a break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Reverend Dr. Stuart Hoke. We'll hear about the role his New York City Trinity Church on Wall Street played after the fall of the Twin, of the twin Towers that became Ground Zero. And last, we'll do an in-depth dig into the 12-step recovery program that he champions and shares. He started to give us a little taste of it then. Stay tuned. More to come. You're listening to All Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy, a production of flagandbanner.com. If you miss any part of this show or want to learn more about UIYB, go to flagandbanner.com and click the radio show or subscribe through your favorite podcast application. We'll be right back. We've got great news from the Dreamland Ballroom. Dancing into Dreamland is back for the 11th year. That's right, 11th annual Dancing into Dreamland happens on February 12th, 2022. They're changing up the formula a bit with a Valentine's Gala right there in the Dreamland Ballroom. Don't worry, all the things you love about the long-standing fundraiser are still in the mix. A real night of revelry in the centenarian structure, culminating around a friendly dance competition. Food, drink, a silent auction. Attendees will have the pleasure of viewing several spectacular dances, and varying genres will fill the night. You'll be able to vote for your favorites via text. It's a very fun evening. Dancing into Dreamland. And not the least important thing is it's a terrific fundraiser for this extraordinary historic venue. A panel of celebrity judges will pick their favorite act, and they'll be awarded a special cash prize. Dancing into Dreamland is back, February 2022. I'm speaking today with Reverend Dr. Stuart Hoke, Episcopal priest. Before the break, we were talking about... How Dr. Hulk became a preacher, how he kind of always knew he wanted to be one, and uh, it's not really in your family, but it's in you, and that that people in your life can really affect how you you grow up to be, and that you had a great example of an Episcopal priest in Blyville who really set a great example for you on how to be. And so now, after receiving your Master's of Divinity degree, degree in Cambridge, Massachusetts, you worked and ministered all over Arkansas and Texas before you moved to New York City and, and, the twin, and uh, 9-11 happened. So how did, the, how did you go from Cambridge, Massachusetts, to Texas, back to Texas and Arkansas to minister? I was uh, ordained in the Diocese of Oklahoma. Uh, oh, really? By uh, hook and crook, I was invited by the Bishop of Oklahoma to be a part of that crew over there. And he stationed me after ordination in a church in Tulsa. And I was there for two years. And then a man from Little Rock called me and said, I want you to come work over here. And the bishop over here said, I want you to move across the state line. Who was the bishop? The bishop was Christoph Keller. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I moved to Arkansas. And this is home for me. And it felt so good. I was at St. Mark's here in Little Rock for three years. And then I moved to St. John's Church in Harrison. And was there for six years. Oh, really? Yeah. And St. John's and Harrison at the time was a very conflicted church, and I had grown up in a conflicted family, and I knew some of the dynamics of how to fix situations like that, so I employed them. Did you fix and, it? Uh, no. <laughs> well, they, they fixed me. <laughs> you can't fix humans. We're just unfixable. Yeah. Then I moved. I, I had a call to a, a big church in Texas, and I moved to Amarillo, Texas, spent 10 years there. Where's that? Amarillo? Did you say Amarillo? Oh, Amarillo. Yeah. Yeah. After that in Houston, uh, after 29 years in parish ministry, uh, being rector of parish, 
I got the education bug, and I thought I would really like to go back to school. Feared that I couldn't even write a footnote, but I thought, well, I'd love to do that. How anyway. old are you now? I'm 72. Not now, but I mean then when you decided to go 49. back. 49. You're 49. You 49. decided to go back to get a Ph.D., I guess, right? Yeah, got a, a master's degree just to try it out, see if I could do it, and then spent the next uh, four years working on a Ph.D., like a Ph.D. Theology. An earned doctorate, yes. Mm-hmm. And had no idea what I would do with that, but it's opened so many doors. And, really? Uh, just so many doors. It gave me the, a credential that I've needed in order to do some of the things that I've done. Uh, not only write, but preach and teach hither and thither. And the degree has helped do that. So you, uh, so you left, uh, you were in Amarillo, and then you moved to Houston to a really another big church. You got the academic bug. Moved to New York City. And you moved to New York City. Absolutely loved living in New York. In, in your early 40s. Yeah. Uh, went in to my school late 40s. For, in your late 40s. Went to yeah. school for how long? Went to school for uh, six years until I was 55. That's when I was awarded the doctoral degree. And simultaneously got a job at Trinity Church Wall Street, which is the probably the biggest Episcopal church in North America uh, as really? far as budget and outreach. And but there's nobody goes there. Pardon? But there's not any, hardly any parishioners. I've been there, actually. I went to service there one time. Matthew, you remember going to service there when we were in Wall Street? He was too young. We went there. It may have been you that was there. It's been so long ago because it was right after 9-11, and we went to church in there, but there wasn't hardly anybody in it. After 9-11, it was, it was scary what had happened. No one was coming down. There, literally, the there were 20 the people in this big, beautiful church. And now it's packed to the gills Again. on Sunday morning. That's yeah. nice. Yeah. So many of our people died in the tragedy, <sighs> and so much fear about being down on Wall Street at the time. So it was... It had a blow. It was a year before it was back in. So you had been swing. there for how long when 9/11 happened? I was there for a year, and I lived on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Took the subway to uh, my office every day. The office was about 75 yards from the first tower, from the North Tower. Where were you when the when the planes hit? hit? I was on the subway when the first plane hit, and the subway conductor said, "We are approaching." Chamber Street, where you'll need to get off and get on the other side to take the local train to get to Wall Street. And then he said, stay on the train. There has been an incident at the first tower. And then he screamed, stay on the train. So all of us stayed on the train. We had no idea what was going on. Got off at Rector Street near Wall Street, came up out, out of the subway tunnel. It was a beautiful day when I'd gotten on the train, and it was very cloudy when I got off. Uh, there was debris in the air. There were uh, women's clothes coming down from the sky. Uh, and it was, um, people were screaming. A friend of mine said, a small plane has just hit the first tower. Uh, let's go down and see what's happened. So I said, well, let's go. I mean, I always want to see what's, see what's happening. And we went down, and if you know New York at all, we stood at the corner of Greenwich and Liberty Street, at the entrance of the North Tower, watched the South Tower burn, three floors, kept hearing people saying, it's only a small plane that's hit it. It's only a small plane. And yet we could see three entire floors engulfed by flame. And about that time, it was two minutes till nine o'clock, another plane from the west came from out of the blue. It was right over our heads, a thousand feet 
above us, hit the tower at an angle right where we were standing, and the debris began coming down. And the woman next to me uh, had the most incredible question. She said, is this a setting for a movie? And, oh, my gosh. Uh, I, I thought immediately of Bruce Willis, and I thought, well, of course, this is one of his disaster movies. And I said, yes. And we just stood there uh, until another friend came up to me, shook me literally by the scruff of my neck, and said, Stuart, run for your life. And it dawned on me I was in trouble, and I, I ran for my life. And, uh, many didn't. The, some of that debris covered some of the people with whom I was standing. Killed him? Mm-hmm. With whom you were standing? Not not too far away. All of that debris from the impact of the plane and what came down, the jet fuel, and the debris. I ran into the basement of the American Stock Exchange, and then the church office was right next door, Trinity Wall Street. Trinity's been there since 1689, so it's been a, it's been a fixture on Wall Street. Ran in there, and the rector said to me, the rector is the pastor, I was his assistant, and he said, people are streaming down Broadway, Broadway, the major street Mm -hmm. in the city, and they're looking for shelter, and they're running into the church, go over there and do something immediately. Mm -hmm. And I said, what do you want me to do? And he said, I don't know, just get there, go over there. So he spotted the organist, and he said to the organist, go with Stuart, go to the church, and you all do something immediately. People are coming in. And we went over, and we did a spontaneous, impromptu service of, of scripture readings and hymns and prayers, mostly as crowd control. Oh. You could hardly call it worship, and yet it was that too. Mm-hmm. And some really amazing thing happened in that 45-minute segment between us getting there and the fall of the first tower. And when it fell, the windows fell out of Trinity, the lights went off, people got under the pews, some of the people got under the pews. So we had 45 really good minutes there to, to sing and to pray and to, to read salient pieces of Scripture, like the 23rd Psalm. I read the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Mm -hmm. And there was a man in the congregation who did something I've never had done in all my years of of ministry. He jumped up and said, do that again. Mm. And he loved, he loved that portion of yea, though Though I I walked through the the valley valley of death. It's very comforting. It's so comforting. Yeah. He appeared again, but I've never had anyone do that, especially in an Episcopal service. Yeah, right. uh Well, uh, I did make a huge faux pas at one point. I said, the next hymn we're going to sing, I was trying to choose very familiar hymns like... Mm-hmm. Uh, Onward, Christian Soldiers. I, I, well, I wanted to do that, mm-hmm. but I thought twice about that. Uh, I said, the next hymn will be Nearer My God to Thee. Oh, well, yeah. Well, this man said, no, no. not that one. <laughs> And if you're old enough, you remember that the first movie, the Titanic, uh, as the ship was going down into the drink, the little blast brass band was playing "Nearer My God to Thee." Mm. Well, a bunch of the people in the congregation remembered that. Mm-hmm. And amidst all of this cacophony and craziness and sirens and the darkening of the church, people laughed occasionally. And it reminded me of something about humor and humanity and humility. And uh, we were really depending on, on, on God's grace to whatever would happen. 
But the humor was part of it, and it was, I think about that a lot. That was such a gift at that moment. Here's a handful of reactions from people who were just outside Trinity Wall Street on the day of the towers came down. And what I saw, I looked up because I heard this shriek of engines and then this, what I thought was a sonic boom. I got up and raced to the other side of the building, looked out and saw the flames pouring out of um, the first tower. The fire was nowhere near discreet. It was, it was growing. That was about nine o'clock. I'm making these phone calls and kaboom, the second one hits. And I looked at the North Tower and I saw a man jump, you know, from somewhere way up high. And um, at that point I said, you know, I really need to go because I can't help these people. When all of a sudden, you know, down comes the tower. And that was like, um, I, you know, I, I, I felt like um, uh, someone in Pompeii when Vesuvius um, erupted. I mean, it was just instantly we were surrounded by a choking cloud of debris. It burst through the northeast side of the building where I was, um, the closest to it because I was the closest to it because I wanted to have a, you know, a view of what was going on. Um, and I was under the desk in total pitch black. Uh, then the second tower came down. There was a fireman who just happened to be standing next to me and he said, it's coming down, run. Now back to Kerry McCoy's guest on this special 20th anniversary of 9-11 program of Up In Your Business. Her guest is Stuart Hoke, the interim rector or priest in charge at St. Mark's Episcopal Church in Little Rock. He was there on 9-11. I, I was really involved in that day. And I was, uh, when that tower fell, I was leading that congregation when some of them got under the pews. Uh, it was a, a, a moment of horror because the lights went out, it got dark. There was a woman on the front row who was screaming at the top of her lungs, Jesus, Jesus. There was someone at the back of the church going, anthrax, anthrax. What? And me thinking, well, is he prescient? What's he, what's he doing? Is he, does he a mind reader? And then the verger, the guy that handles all the services in that big church, he was going, shut up, shut up. <laughs> and it was my job to try to, to settle things down and to keep right on going be faithful to what was at hand. And a policeman came in and he said, you all need to get out of here quickly. If that second building falls, and he told us what had happened, uh, this time it, it may fall right on the top of Trinity. There are boats of all shapes, models, and kinds down in the harbor waiting to evacuate the island. So get down there as fast as you can, and, and people fled. I and didn't turned, realize people fled the island. They did. It's, the, it's now known as the biggest naval evacuation in the history of, of evacuations. I did not know that. Over over a hundred, maybe two hundred thousand people were. Did evacuated. you evacuate by boat? Mm -hmm. Where'd I you did. go? Well, I ran. What I did, I ran back into the office building before I went to the boat. To uh, we had a day school at the time, and it was early in the morning. We had one hundred and fifty children. Only ninety had been had gotten there that day. If the terrorists had come just a little bit later, so many more parents would have been in the World Trade Center. Mm. Anyway, well, it was a cold day. It was the first cold day of the year. Uh, staff members wrapped the little tiny babies and children up in their coats. And at a given signal, we ran down the street. We ran toward the Staten Island Ferry. And the second building fell at that 
at that particular moment. And you've seen pictures probably of the dust ball that comes down the street. Mm-hmm. Well, it engulfed us. It was 240 miles an hour, I think it was clocked, that particular ball of terror. And it knocked everybody all over the place. We could hear babies crying, and someone said, am I dead, am I dead? Well, we picked, picked ourselves up, uh, got our bearings, and thanks to a wonderful young business manager at the, at the church itself, led all of us again uh, on the road to the Staten Island Ferry. And we got there eventually. And there were boats of all kinds leading people to uh, one place or another. The fascinating thing is two buses came down the sidewalk. You have to imagine all the streets were gridlocked. People had jumped out of their cars, even leaving the cars running. They were everywhere, but two buses came down the sidewalks, stopped where we were, city buses, and said, we can take your children and your day school teachers to shelter. We know a route up the um, FDR freeway. We will take them to St. Rose's in the Bronx, and there they'll be safe. Use your walkie-talkies, use your cell phones while they'll still last. Notify, uh, leave a message so that when parents call, say that your children are located hither and thither. And by 10 o'clock that night, every single child had been reunited with every single parent. Well, this was amazing because 80% of our parents in that school were World Trade Center parents. And they had either not gotten to work or they were not in harm's way when when disaster hit. 80%? 80% of those children's parents were World Trade Center parents. I went to Staten Island on a boat on the, on the ferry. The ferry was so crowded they made us sit down and wear life preservers, yeah. which had not ever been used. Probably, so they, you were probably over the limit in weight. Absolutely over the limit. There were rumors that Dallas had been hit, Washington, uh, Baltimore, all kinds of rumors. And people were saying, who hit us? Who did this? Uh, even rumors about the Chinese Air Force, possibly. How home. long before you got back home? I didn't get home until the next day because they wouldn't let us back into Manhattan. And I had to sleep. I slept at the Marine recruiting station because one of them saw me and said, are you a priest? I had on my basic Collar. black. Mm-hmm. And he said, you're covered in all that dust. And I said, yes. And he said, well, you look terrible. Why don't you come in and clean up and take a rest. And I said, please tell me what's happened. And so he filled me in, and I I spent the night there. And the next day was able to get back into the city. What was that night like? Could you sleep at all? No, because my son lived in in Washington at the time, near the Pentagon. And I was frantic trying to get in touch with him, and he me. Uh, I had talked to another son, and I I was married at the time, talked to my wife. And uh, we couldn't find this, this other son. He called at 2 o'clock in the morning. The phone systems had opened up to an extent. And we just cried on the phone with each other, just in gratitude that we were alive and, and had been through hell. Do you have lung issues from it? Have what? Lung? I, I have not had the lung issues, although many of my contemporaries did. Uh, the... Environmental Protection Agency told us that the air was fine. Yeah, what was that all about? Then they came back two years later and said, we we didn't tell you the truth. It was very toxic. No kidding. So many of our people had the lung ailment, and so many were afflicted with cancer, including me. Oh, really? A virulent form of, I had a virulent form of prostate cancer, which was a direct result 
of being uh, there. Uh, did you work? There. Did you go? How many days before you got back to the church? Got back to the church in three days. And started because you ended up um, working at the St. Paul's next door. Not immediately, but I was. I was. We were all there constantly. St. Paul's that night on the 11th, the policemen and women, firemen and women, rescue workers came in and took over that church. They thought, oh, we know this is going to be an open and friendly space. They knocked the door down. They put up porta potties out front. Parishioners came uh, illegally, set up barbecue pits, and began serving these guys and these women hot dogs and hamburgers. Love it. So by in 24 hours, that had become a respite center, and it continued for the next 11 months. I thought you were going to say that it was the church where they all the uh, firemen hung their boots on it while they changed their boots it, out. It was the church. That was the church. So for our listeners, so. son Matt, you remember going up there and all the boots that were hanging on the fence that were left? Yeah, so. so, So for our listeners, uh, the firemen and the rescue people would come back, first responders would come back, change their shoes out, and they would hang their old boots on the iron fence there. On the old iron fence. And there were 300 pairs of boots. And then they never came back. They never came back. They never came back. And they left them there, because I saw them. We went up there to see Ground Zero a year later and saw them, and it is just overwhelmingly emotional. It is. It is. And St. Paul's Chapel became that, too. We had 40,000 visitors uh, a week for almost a year because it was the only place to grieve. The city didn't provide a place to mourn. Uh, The church was a safe place. People knew that they could cry there and no one would try to take that away from them. So it, it became quite a place. Okay, let's take a break. You're listening to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy, a production of flagandbanner.com. Over 40 years ago, with only $400, Carrie founded Arkansas Flag and Banner. During the last four decades, the business has grown and changed, along with Carrie's experience and leadership knowledge. In 1995, she launched the business website flagandbanner.com, became an early blogger in 2004, founded the nonprofit Friends of Dreamland Ballroom in 2009, began distributing a biannual publication called Brave Magazine in 2014, and today she's branched out into this very radio show, YouTube channel, and podcast. Each week, you'll hear her engage in candid conversations with her guests about real-world experiences on a variety of businesses and topics that we hope you'll find interesting, educational, and motivational. This year, stay informed about her upcoming and exciting guests by subscribing to our Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy YouTube channel. For a complete update of happenings on the Flag and Bannered campus, like Dreamland Ballroom, sneak preview of upcoming Up In Your Business guests, sales at flagandbanner.com, relevant Brave magazine articles, and Carrie's current blog post, join our email list at flagandbanner.com to receive our very popular, all-inclusive, water cooler weekly email. Telling American-made stories, selling American-made flags. The flagandbanner.com. Since this program, Up in Your Business with Carrie McCoy, is commemorating the 20th anniversary of 9-11, let's listen to a quick report from NBC News about the museum that commemorates 9-11 in New York City. 11-year-old Chloe Downey never met her grandfather, but at the 9-11 Memorial Museum, she feels close to him. He loved being a fireman and saving lives, and he was a big hero. New York Fire Department Deputy Chief Raymond Downey died in the attacks, 
but first he saved lots of lives. We will never now his granddaughter is featured in a new national 9-11 PSA, asking people to remember nearly 3,000 were killed in the attacks. It's part of a fundraising campaign to keep the museum open following an unprecedented year. How did the pandemic affect the operating budget of this museum? The reality is our business model collapsed overnight. The head of the 9-11 Memorial and Museum said its revenue comes mostly from ticket sales, which plummeted nearly $45 million last year. Despite federal PPP and increased efforts, there were cutbacks in staff, programs, and visiting hours. But the museum, like the moment it commemorates, is determined to come back strong. Why is it so important that this museum is here? There is an entire generation of young people who have no lived memory of the attacks. Our obligation is to teach them. Teach about heroes like Chloe's grandfather. He just like inspires me to do great things too. And that only happens if we never forget. Rahima Ellis, NBC News, New York. You're listening to Up In Your Business with me, Carrie McCoy. I'm speaking today with Reverend Dr. Stuart Hope. Before the break, we were talking about being in Wall Street when 9-11 happened and everything that happened to all the people there and how, really, how wonderful humans come together when they really need to. You were talking about it. And we were talking about how this time every year, it's, it's hard on you. Yeah. I imagine the nightmares are terrible. But... We can lighten it up a little bit by talking about something really wonderful, which is um, substance abuse. That's oh, not really wonderful, but <laughs> we, can talk about, we can talk about something that you've had great success with. Uh, uh, substance abuse affects so many people in so many ways. And when did you first realize that you had an issue? I started to realize that sometime around 1984, 85, I was suffering such terrible depression. And I kept going to one therapist after another, and they medicated me for it. Mm -hmm. And no one ever said, are you pouring a depressant on your depression? Why do people not realize alcohol is a depressant? I don't know, but I, uh, I'm a smart person. But the first and foremost symptom of the disease of addiction is denial. That was me, I mean, practicing denial to the hilt. It was like that woman saying, is this a movie? When the sky was falling and mm -hmm. the rug was being pulled out from under me, I was saying, well, yes, it is. It's yeah, just denial. a bad movie. Mm -hmm. so, was uh, there something that happened that just you just said, this was, is the day? It was a confluence of things. It was the strangest thing. One was a dream that I'd had. And I, uh, one of the therapists that I'd gone to to, uh, to deal with depression, she, she was really good about dream analysis. And I was attentive to dreams, but not... Not crazy about that. But one was a dream. One was a book called I'll Quit Tomorrow, written by an Episcopal priest named Bernard Johnson. Well, you were reading that already? Mm -hmm. It was sitting on my bedside table, and somehow it went from the bottom to the top. Now, my wife may have had something to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> so you were already sus suspicious. Already suspicious. And just and living in denial. And uh, I used to take those 20 questions. You would find them in Red Book or Reader's Digest or Dentist's Office magazines. Uh, are you having trouble with alcohol? Have you lost your car and not known where it is? Yeah, there were 20 questions. And I, every year I take them to build my character. And I would always say, isn't it amazing I can answer 14 out of the 20 affirmatively and not be an alcoholic? <sighs> so that's utter denial. But mm -hmm. this time, that year, I thought, I'm in trouble. 
What and, happened uh, that year that made you think you were in trouble? That uh, the depression had been so bad, and I had been hospitalized, as a matter of fact, with depression. And I had someone come see me in the in the psychiatric hospital and said, Stuart, your problem is not your psyche. It may be off kilter. Your problem is you drink too much and you drink too often and you're trying to medicate your feelings. Get to the right place and get the right treatment. And uh, somehow I heard what he was what he was saying. Was this before 9-11? Uh-huh. This was 30 some years before that. So yeah. how old were you when you quit drinking? I was 39. Oh, so you've you've been sober a long time. Thirty-one years. Thirty-one years. You've never had a slip. No. You're kidding. No. No, and it's no been, desires to go back. It has been the very best thing that's ever happened to me. You it's, went through nine eleven and weren't didn't absolutely. drink. Absolutely. First thing I did when I got back to the city was to go with my friends to to one of my meetings, and so many of my uh, not so many some of my friends in the meeting had died at nine eleven, and that group just mm. was so close to one another and in our sobriety. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it's been 31 years, and it's been, it's been a gift. I, I did go to treatment, and uh, the day I got home from treatment, I met this man, and he said, I'm going to be your sponsor. And I said, I don't need one. And he said, yeah, uh, that's not any of your business. I'm going to be your, your 12-step sponsor. And I said, well, I've been teaching spirituality for years. I don't need that. And he said, and look where your spirituality has gotten you. (laughs) And he said, to a drunk farm. Well, that was humbling. So, How long uh, were you at the drunk farm? Four four weeks. Four weeks. So, And where were you living? What city at the time when you got a first sponsor? Uh, Amarillo, Texas. They drink down there in Texas. Oh, I'm telling you. They're they're cowboys, and they act like the Marlboro Man. Mm-hmm. Except in recovery, they they show another side, and it's very, very caring, very faithful, and very loving. Why do you think that people are so uh, resistant to joining the twelve steps and following the practice that has worked for decades for people? I think there's still a shame element, even though it's better than it was thirty-one years ago. If I admit I'm alcoholic, then I'm seen as well. Uh, especially true for women. There's a double standard. A man can say, I'm a drunk. Uh, I have trouble with alcohol. And they say, oh, yeah, you've been drinking too much, blah, blah, blah. You're just another jock. A woman can say that. And immediately people say, oh, she's a slut. There's another side to it. So which one do you think it's worse for, women or men? I think it's it's harder for women to get See, into I think it's party. harder for men because uh, they have egos. Well. So that, much bigger than is. ours. There it is right there. Ego. <laughs> Shame. Ego. Do you know what the acronym for ego is, by the way? No. Edging God out. Uh, Oh, no. You know what the acronym for shame is? No. Should have already mastered everything. (laughs) (laughs) That's another good one. Those are tweetable. I don't know where Arwen is, but she used to be tweeting those acronyms. I use those all the time for me. But it it is hard. And it's Uh, it's in the clergy a lot. The the secret to it, though, is Mm -hmm. pain. Is what? Pain. We say pain is the touchstone for all spiritual growth. If I'm in enough pain, as I was at the time, I'm really ready for relief. And if you come to me and say a flight to the moon will give you relief, I might say, take me, I'm yours. But I had some good people surround me and say, we really do think you can find what you're looking for, and you can become the priest you were called to be in the first place. You can fulfill your destiny. Yeah. And that's been so true. So if I've been you, open about my recovery. 
and I've done a lot in the church uh, trying to bridge the gap between two facets of spirituality. They're very similar, but they're different. One meets in the basement sometimes of the church, and one meets upstairs, and the two never meet. But there's been some reprochment that's, by, that's by, gone on. By that, do you mean the congregation and then the clergy? Mm-hmm. Well, no. The, the people in the basement are having their, their meetings, their uh, AA or Al-Anon or mm-hmm. Celebrate Recovery or whatever it is. And then upstairs, they're doing their worship. And so, oh, mm-hmm. that's what you mean by the basement. Yeah, and exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well... I think a lot of people in AA have a problem with the, what step is it that you've got to turn your, something um, about religious, which step is that about religion? Uh, it's two? Uh, let's see, made a decision to turn my life and will over to the care of God. Is that step two? That's three. Three. Uh, uh, surrender. Uh, surrender. Surrender. I think a lot of people have a problem with that. Who cares? Just do it. Just do it. Nike says, just do it. There, I mean, really, who cares? If you're miserable, just do it and see if it works. If it doesn't, you can always go back, but you can always try it. If the pain is great enough, you'll do it. That's interesting that you have to be in so much pain to, to move, but people are very resistant to change. And they say you have, to get a, uh, you have to reach a bottom. These days they say, well, you know, you can stop the elevator at any floor. You don't have to go all the way to the basement. You can get off. Alcoholism is a progressive disease. It's chronic. It's fatal. Um, and I think that's true, too. A lot of times people f- do your 20 questions that you did and say, well, I didn't answer all 20 of them, so I'm okay. Exactly. So, I mean, I've even seen that in uh, in people I know. They go, well, I never had I never had a car wreck and killed anybody. I never, you know, had a blackout, woke up in the wrong town, what some other people I know have, so I'm not as bad as them. They kind of compare their alcoholism to other people's alcoholism. I guess and use that adverb, yet. I haven't had that happen yet. So we talk about people who have the case of the yets. Oh. Oh, I haven't killed someone yet. I haven't wrecked my car yet. I don't have a DUI yet. And then there's the ones that have a good reason for, 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 you know, not just drinking, but for lots of things in life. You know, they have a good reason why they don't want to do it when really it's not an excuse. It's just a reason. You, you, know, you may have a good reason to, to misbehave, but that's not an excuse to keep doing it. Yeah, if, it's, uh, if you're suffering consequences, if it's ruining the quality of your life and other people around you, I mean, the the signs and symptoms are there. Let me tell everybody that they're listening to Up In Your Business with me, Carrie McCoy, and that I'm speaking today with Dr. Stuart Hoke, Episcopal priest. We've been talking about how Dr. Hoke was at Ground Zero, wasn't Ground Zero then, but was at Wall Street when nine, when the Twin Towers fell. And we spent the first half hour of the show. If you missed it, you should go listen to the podcast next week and hear it. But you also have a... You, there's a lot about you online, and you have a... Is it, it's not a TED Talk, but you have a video about you talking about... Your, your experience during 9-11. Yes. How do you get to that? It's WRAC in Chap- uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. It's WRAC? WRAC. That's the name of the uh, radio station? Television station. TV, TV station. It's easily findable on Facebook, just Stuart Hoke and video about Well, if anybody Googles your name, they're going to find tons about you because of your recovery work yeah. that you've done, your ministry in recovery, and then because of this uh, life experience that you lived through. And Hoke is spelled H-O-K-E. And we will put links to that on flagandbanner.com's website next week when we upload this podcast. But you did two recovery ministries that you're kind of famous for making a program, I think. Or at least I kind of read that you did two. And maybe 
two type of programs for the congregation and the clergy. Can you speak to that? We don't have much longer, but... Across the country, I've been invited to come and do parish workshops on the symptoms of alcoholism, the uh, places one can find recovery, what it's like, uh, how to recognize it, and what it's like on the other side, what recovery is like spiritually. I talk a lot about, I'm not a doctor and I'm not a psychiatrist, but I can talk eloquently about the spiritual aspects of the disease, denial, resentment, isolation, fear, guilt, shame, and this deep longing for connection with, with something greater than I am, or with just another human being. So I have a lot to say about that. And, uh, I think the church and the programs of recovery, not just AA, but programs of recovery speak to that. Are you doing that here in Little Rock? I did. I've done it twice. I've done it at St. Mark's, and I'll do it again. I'll do it again soon. I think. If someone wants to find out about that, how do they? How do they find out? Will it be on the Trinity Episcopal website? Yes, probably. It, yeah, yeah. So um, I guess they could sign up for the Trinity Episcopal newsletter and or get just it. Just Google Trinity Episcopal Cathedral newsletter. But the, yeah, and they, but but it's not in there right now because you haven't planned it. Not yet. Yeah, so you'd have to Google that a lot. Or they could just sign up for the newsletter and then finally find out something about you. Because you're pretty interesting about about recovery. You're funny. I I listened to one of your very first time I heard you preach, you preached about recovery, and you're just downright funny. You told me that one time. I said, (laughs) moi? Like Miss Piggy. Moi? Who, moi? If you wait too long... Is it true you get, like, wet brain and you can't get well? Yeah. That's true. Yeah. It's a chronic, progressive, and fatal disease. Uh, We say if it's not treated, if you're an alcoholic, you may be a heavy drinker, which you can quit any time, but if you're alcoholic and cannot quit on your own without some spiritual, emotional, and physical help at times, then the end result is going to be jail or insanity or it's going to be the graveyard. And that's uh, that's usually the case. And it goes so unrecognizedly. I mean, we call it by every other name. We call it bad communication, child abuse. We have all kinds of names. But look at the root. If you look under every rock, there's probably some alcoholism there that's the root of the problem. Poor work ethic. So many church conflicts are based in uh, somewhere there's an alcohol problem in the church or an addiction problem. Well, and, you know, Episcopalians and Catholics, mm. we're kind of historically known for mm-hmm. over-serving ourselves. They used to say about Episcopalians, wherever there are four, wherever there are four gathered together, there's always a fifth. So, what does that mean? Like a leader? Oh, a fifth? fifth. Oh, I just got it. <laughs> <laughs> but they've changed the term to leader now. So it's... Oh, leader. Uh, there's always a fifth. Never heard that before. And I've been called a Wiscopalian before. You've yeah. probably heard yeah. that one before. But, um, so who, um, who who inspires you besides Jesus Christ, of course? Uh, uh, one of the spiritual writers that's just made a difference in my life is a man named Frederick Beekner, Presbyterian writer, has just really helped me over the years, even before recovery. Uh, another one named James Hollis, who is a Jungian psychologist, and he's been very helped me, uh, helped me about living in the heart, not all the time in the head, trying to put those two together. If I have a legacy in life, it's going to be, I, I want to be remembered as being a man not only of the head, I'm a smart person, but a, a person in the heart, 
where relationships are really important. That is so hard to do. It is so hard to do. Speaking of legacy, what do you want your legacy to be? I want to, I want to be remembered as someone who is transparent and open. Uh, I certainly want to be remembered for my work in recovery, if that's possible, because that's, that's an ongoing problem, and it's getting worse and worse and worse and worse. It um, seems like it's a societal problem. It is. It is. Uh, it's, it's as if society is addicted. It is kind of. It seems like it's, it's like it's okay to be drinking all the time. Mm-hmm. And to live in denial. Mm-hmm. 20 years ago, I was, I was getting finishing that THT. I had just been hired at Trinity Wall Street. I was, had been sober for 11 years. I was moving toward the top of my, my, my game. I don't know that I would have changed a thing at the time. Lovely. Living in New York. Now I realize I wasn't at the top of my game then. I am now. It's just that I'm older. I'm 72 now, and I have limitations, uh, including some joint problems. But the last five years for me have been the richest time in my entire life. And, And part of that excitement has been the last year of moving back to Arkansas and reconnecting with friends and family all over the state. Connectedness is what I long for. And I've, some of that's uh, I've had realized. So things like this just are thrilling to me. You think it was Providence that you ended up in New York when the towers you know, fell? You know I do uh, in so many ways because I was able to contribute immediately and right on target with a number of things. Uh, uh, and we don't need to go into what they were, but my, my pastoral skills... Uh, what I have been through in my own life, which has not been without struggle, I mean, I was able to just um, walk right into the situation and do good ministry. How did you decide to leave and come back? To Arkansas? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I, this problem I have, my, my brother's a physician in the state. Oh, your joint pain? Uh-huh. And I called him one day, and I, he said, that's, that's serious. And he said, you're going to need some medical help. And I said, and I cannot get it where I am. I'm trying. He said, why don't you come here? Why don't you just move over here? And I'll navigate this world for you. So oh, the next somebody morning, say I, that to me, please? I called him back the next morning and said, I think I'll just move. He said, well, that's a great idea. <laughs> I love your brother. <laughs> so my brother inspired me. I love that. I've got a gift for you. Matthew, hand me that. This is for you. It's flags. It's a desk set of all the places you've ever lived. That's the United States. That's Tennessee, in case you don't know. I do. That's Texas. Arkansas. That's Arkansas, and there's your Episcopal. And the USA. And right in the middle. Got to be it. in the highest spot. I Isn't love that great? It. Yes. Thank you for coming on today. Oh, I I'm so enjoyed, it. even though you made me cry. Well. I could cry again thinking about it. I don't start talking about it. I'll start crying again. I'll be like Oprah. They'll be crying all the time every time she goes on TV. <laughs> so tired of seeing her cry. If you have a great entrepreneurial story you would like to share, I would love to hear from you. Send a brief bio and your contact info to questions at upyourbusiness.org.